0: So Money, episode 885, Ramin Setude, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Ladies Who Punch.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When Barbara Walters was in her 30s and 40s, her father was a nightclub owner and he gambled away his family's fortune on these investments. And as a result of that, Barbara was always very conscious of money and always very afraid that her fortune could disappear one day.
0: That's Ramin said today, our guest today. Talking about the one and only Barbara Walters, creator of The View. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today, Ramin Setoudi, is the author of Ladies Who Punch. It's a brand new book that takes a deep dive into the personalities behind The View. If anyone here listening is a fan of The View or once upon a time watched it, this episode is for you. Ramin's book, Ladies Who Punch, has become an instant New York Times bestseller despite initially being rejected by publishers over 20 times. Can you believe that? You heard him talk a little bit about some of the financial fears that Barbara Walters harbors. Ramin went deep with this book, looking at how The View came to be, the rejection that The View received in the beginning of Barbara Walters' pitch. Not many people believed in the concept, the behind the scenes of how some of the co-hosts handled the drama that ensued being on The View. And of course, Ramin's own personal experiences with money. Ramin is an award-winning journalist. He's the New York Bureau Chief for Variety. He was formerly a senior writer at Newsweek, and he's also written for the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and many other publications. Here's Ramin Setudeh. Ramin Setudeh, welcome to So Money. This is like the interview of all interviews. Everybody hold on to your seatbelts. We're going to go into the view and the behind the scenes. This is epic. Thank you for writing this book. Welcome to the show.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, let's just get right to it because I don't want to waste any time. Your book is all about the behind the scenes of The View, Ladies Who Punch. takes us back to the beginnings of The View. This is one of the longest running daytime talk shows in history, also one of the most gossiped, one of the most dramatic, drawn out episodes. The View itself, behind the scenes, deserves a television show. You, Ramin, as a journalist – You were interested in covering this. Why?
1: Well, so I've been a journalist for 15 years writing about entertainment. And the one subject that I've always written about that people are always incredibly interested in is the view. So there's just an interest in the show. Like the general public wants to know what's going on. Like, are you know the comings, the goings, the firings, the hirings. And I think it's because it touches on a lot of different things that are important in our culture, including women in Hollywood, red states versus blue states, politics. Um, And there's just a lot of ground that the show has covered. And culturally, it's responsible for so much, including sort of introducing us to Donald Trump and, um, you know, showing us, you know, how he treated women when he fought with Rosie O'Donnell. Introducing us to a different side of Donald Trump. Obviously we know who Donald Trump was, but but the view gave us this glimpse into the, the person he'd become on the campaign trail when he was attacking Rosie O'Donnell in two thousand and six.
0: The show was founded by Barbara Walters and interestingly, people were very skeptical of this format. What was the problem with the format? Why why didn't why wouldn't anyone think this could actually work?
1: So when Barbara Walters um uh, launched the show in nineteen ninety seven it was a very different time in news in that news anchors weren't allowed to give their opinion. There was no Instagram, there was no Twitter. Um, You would go on air, you would deliver the news, you would leave and you wouldn't tell people what you thought. And what made the view so groundbreaking was that it was a place for women to talk in the morning about what they thought about the news. Um, And a lot of executives at ABC news thought it would hurt her reputation to be on TV dishing about the president or other sort of scandals that were in the headlines.
0: And the first season, how did it do? I'm curious. I mean, I watched it, but I watched it more as like, you know, just a young girl watching it. And growing up, I thought, oh, be nice as a, you know, as a rising journalist, I was like, oh, someday I will get to be on The View or hopefully someday I'll get discovered and get to be on The View. But then lately I was like, I'm so glad I never did The View because I feel like it does more (laughs) to almost like hurt your reputation sometimes, than help. Uh, That has been the case for some of the the co-hosts. But um, how did things start off for Barbara? And what do you think it has been about the view that's kept it basically on the air for so many years? See,
1: that idea that you just expressed is really interesting. And what I've heard a lot from female journalists is that they could see themselves on the show. And I think what was so interesting and revolutionary and appealing about the show was that in the same way that American Idol did years later, where everyone kind of envisioned, you know, how would I be if I could be a singer? The View gave um, a lot of viewers a platform to sort of envision a version of themselves on that show. So were you the Joy, or were you the star, or were you the Meredith Vieira, or were you the Barbara, or the Debbie Matinopoulos, who was the youngest co-host and um, fired after a year because she wasn't keeping up with Barbara and didn't have enough experience? Um, So I think that the reason this show touched a nerve Was that? That it was, you know, in daytime TV, you have to be very approachable. And this gave you the option of finding someone that you identified with the most. But it didn't initially catch on. The first year, the ratings were very soft and people really didn't know what it was. And it really wasn't until a few seasons in And the SNL parodies that Tina Fey wrote, in which the show, you know, when she was making fun of the ladies, that people really started to watch the show and it became part of our cultural zeitgeist.
0: I remember one of those episodes on SNL because Debbie Matinopoulos, one of the first co hosts, who's since rebounded, she was fired, I don't know how many seasons in, but there was this sort of underlying um comedy about the way that barbara would treat her on the air or or at least the perception that there was this like annoyance that barbara walters had with her and the snl parody was barbara would like force her to go into the corner (laughs) like
1: and i have a whole chapter about that yes in the corner or there was one i think where she put her in a cage um or put her in like put her in like a potato sack with a like a like it was some animal like a like a raccoon or something it, like there were all these funny things um scenarios that tina Fey and the other writers on snl devised um to suggest that barbara was trying to get rid of debbie and then when debbie finally got fired she was inundated with interview requests everyone wanted to talk to her and the only person the only thing she did was she went on snl and played herself and it's a really funny skit it's online she like shows up and she's so clueless that she got fired that she's like return to work the next day and all the other co-hosts are trying to you know figure out how to get rid of her.
0: This was the sort of cattiness that you may not have experienced on a, a panel that consisted of five men or maybe I'm just guessing. What do you think? You think that was this is very like sort of cattiness because of of the females who were co-hosting?
1: I think part of it is our own perceptions in society. I think there was a fascination in the media about what was happening on the show and the inner workings and the relationships between the women, which may not have been the case if it was a group of men, but also the show would handle the firings like it was survivor. So they were very public and very, you know, they tried not to do it so much with a few of the co-hosts in the beginning, but then as time went on, and co-hosts would be fired, it would almost sort of fan the intrigue of the show. And then people would want to see who was going to be their replacement. Because normally on television, when someone's fired, it hurts ratings or viewers are upset. But with The View, it's almost like Game of Thrones where people are like interested in who's, who's out and who's in and what's going on. And there's this sort of whole intrigue with the show that has to do with the firings that I think have sort of become part of, part of the show itself.
0: Probably not what Barbara Walters thought would be you know, what people clung to, you know, or that what would end up being uh, the reason people were so uh, obsessed with the show. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. She wanted to be a
1: very serious show. She wanted to be she thought it would be a small show. She didn't even know she wanted a studio audience. She had no idea that the show would become such a phenomenon and in some ways really shape her legacy. They thought Barbara and her executive producer Bill Getty thought her legacy was sewn up. She was the first woman of first lady of news. She had done all these incredible interviews. She had accomplished so much and paved the way for so many women. And then she created this thing in, you know, the last act of her career that kind of <laughs> had its own narrative and changed the public's perception about Barbara and and also made her a lot more relatable. People Barbara said to me, She was like, people didn't know that I was funny. They didn't know I had a sense of humor. They didn't really know the real me until I was on the video.
0: How did you get so many of the cast members, or the co-hosts rather, to open up to you? Were there any that were absolutely not going to talk to you?
1: It required a lot of patience. Um, When I set out to do this book, I worked on it for three years. I knew I wanted to do the definitive story of the View, And I wanted to interview everyone, truly everyone. Um, And I ended up interviewing about 150 people for the book, including 11 of the co-hosts. And it was, a you know, I'd write letters, I'd write emails. It was a puzzle. I'd have to sort of explain who I talked to and, you know, why it was important for them to talk to me. Um, and the two co-hosts who never agreed to talk to me that I really wanted to talk to were Whoopi Goldberg and Elizabeth hasselback
0: And did that surprise you?
1: I wasn't surprised about Elizabeth because Elizabeth really stopped doing press and left the public spotlight. Um, Whoopi, I think, was open to talking to me in the beginning, and then when she resigned her contract decided not to, but I ended up interviewing, you know, Barbara Walters, Rosie O'Donnell, Meredith Vieira, Star Jones, Sherry Shepard, Jenny McCarthy, Lisa Ling, um, Debbie Matinopoulos. I ended up having enough voices that the book works, but I do wish that Whoopi had also agreed to talk to me.
0: Were any of the people you interviewed, the women, um, were, were any still like really resentful or bitter or held grudges?
1: I don't think I would describe any of the co-hosts I talked to as bitter. Um, I think that, In some cases, it was a difficult experience and it wasn't what they expected. Jenny McCarthy in particular was very open about how it was for her to be on the show. And she was on during a very difficult time because it was Barbara's last year. And there was all this sort of wrangling behind the scenes of the network for control of the show. And also Barbara was having a really hard time letting go of the show. because She didn't really want to leave TV.
0: This book was rejected by 20 publishers, I read. Uh, What was the resistance to publishing this book? Almost like the resistance to The View, uh, first of all, just even being on air. (laughs) And then then a book about it, that was also a a hard sell. What were people not understanding? Because obviously this became a New York Times and Wall Street Journal instant bestseller. Poo-poo, those 20 other publishers. (laughs) Um, But what was the the resistance?
1: I think it was um – it was really shocking to me, actually, because my agent and I thought that this would sell really quickly and there'd be interest in it um, because I had metrics to show how popular the show was. I had, you know, examples of stories that had been read by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And and I, you know, I was very confident that people are really interested in the view. But I think what it was, was I think a lot of publishers didn't see it the way I saw it, and they didn't understand the significance of the show and how important it was. And they thought it was just going to be, I heard, we heard it from a lot of publishers that um, books about the media don't sell, or like, you know, books about, they thought it was just going to be a media book. And that's not what this is. It's a book about, you know, women in Hollywood. It's a book about fame. It's a book about, you know, power and control and what really happens behind the scenes of a TV show.
0: If this were to turn into a movie, which I'm not going to be surprised if there's already been Hollywood uh, producers calling for the rights, but... I don't know. I mean, it would be. It would seem really hard to cover twenty plus years, uh, the arc in a, in like a, you know, one hundred twenty minutes. If you had to pick a period of time, that the, from the beginning to now of the view, what's to you? What do you think is like the most dramatic or most pivotal slash interesting of all of the, of all of the iterations?
1: See, I think it should be. I don't. Maybe I'm giving away too much, but I think it should be a miniseries. I think it should be a limited mini series that so you could cover, you know, all the big years on the show, but I think you kind of want to walk through Barbara creating the show in 1997 and how, you know, radical and groundbreaking it was and it took, take us through Debbie's firing and then the Elizabeth years and the Rosie years and the Barbara retiring and the like it is it is a Shakespearean story. There's a lot that happened on the show and I feel like you kind of need to take viewers through sort of the highs and lows, but um, certainly to me, the most important year of the show, I think, and the turning point in the show was in 2006 when Rosie O'Donnell, um, became the moderator of the show after Meredith Vieira left to go do today.
0: Ryan Murphy, you listening, or maybe Shonda Rhimes. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Either of them.
0: I'll just take 10%. That's all.
1: Okay. That's fair.
0: Ramin, tell me about your background a little bit. I I'm, I love that I can say your name correctly because I'm also Iranian and I um, I think you're – I know. I appreciate that. Well, and also you're really famous within the Iranian community, community outside of, of course, your own profession. But I was at um, – I was meeting with um, this guy, Iman, who runs Persian Observer and – we were chatting and he, and like within 10 minutes, he was like, do you know Ramin said who did? And I was like, (laughs) well, funny you ask. we are having a podcast soon. And he thought that was the coolest thing. It was like two of his favorite people podcasting. Um, what were your,
1: he's so nice to me. He's always doing like shout outs on the, on his Persian observer Instagram account. He's so, he's so like great and nice.
0: He is wonderful and he deserves all his success. Tell me about Little Ramin and what were your aspirations? Did you? I was obsessed with Hollywood and celebrities as a kid, didn't make that into my career, um, although maybe I should have. What were your uh, kind of professional aspirations growing up?
1: So, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be an author. Um, I grew up as the immigrants of two, in the United States and Arizona, as the immigrants of two parents from Iran. And my parents were really, they really instilled the love of reading. In me from a very young age. I remember we would go to the library two or three times a week so that I could check out as many books as possible, whatever the limit was. And we would come home, I would read them all, and then we'd go back to the library. Um, I lived in the library as a kid. And the one thing I wanted to be was an author. And I really wanted to be an author, um, you know, and write books. And first it was, it kind of like coincided with my age. So first I wanted to write children's books, I wanted to write young adult books. And then I was like, maybe I'll do you know, other kinds of books. Um, and then in junior high school, I, I started working at the school paper and I discovered journalism. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. I really loved it because there was this immediate gratification. You could write what, about whatever you really wanted to write about. It would be published. It didn't have to be so long <laughs> as a book. Um, and I stayed as a journalist. Like, so I did journalism in junior high school. I did journalism in high school. Um, I ju- did journalism in college. And then out of college, um, I started as a writer and editor at Newsweek in 2004 and have been a journalist ever since.
0: What has been one of your favorite stories outside of this book, which by the way, so much more congratulations now knowing that ever since you were little, you've wanted to be an author. What a dream come true. I mean, this is like you've hit all of the major leagues with uh, as far as published books go with the New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller, you're touring. Um, but what has been your most, your proudest journalistic moment prior to this?
1: My favorite moments as a journalist have been when I've been able to have um, meaningful interviews and write like really raw and interesting profiles of of the subjects that I interview. Um, When I was at Newsweek, I remember going to the Florida Keys and interviewing Eric Carle, the author of The Very Hungry Caterpillar and it's my mom's favorite story that i ever wrote. She lo- like she loves that book. my mom's a teacher and she loves that book and teaches it to her students and couldn't believe that i spent a day in Eric Carl's house and in his kitchen talking to him about the book. Um so for me it's always journalism's always about connecting with people and telling stories that other people may not know and that's always the most rewarding thing for me as a journalist.
0: You know, Mr. Rogers interviewed mm-hmm. Eric Carl. And that was pretty big. Like not many people have gotten that opportunity. What's his house like? Is it as the colorful as I would it. imagine? <laughs> it's
1: The house is incredible. It's on the water. It's like there's color everywhere. It's interesting because I was thinking and I wrote about this, how like there's color in his entire life. Everywhere he looked there were like colors and animals and it's sort of like you could see either he, I, I think he created the house to sort of capture who he is. Um, because that's what his books are about.
0: Going back to your roots a little bit, um, immigrant parents, um, Middle Eastern background, talk about money a little bit and how that was introduced to you. In my household, money was not a taboo topic. And I wonder if that was similar in your experience.
1: Not at all. Um, It wasn't taboo at all. And I, in fact, remember, I think when I was in the first or second grade, um, my mom bought me this book. And it was, I think, I don't remember what it was called, but in my memory, it was called like money. And it was like a little kid on like a green background. And it was all about the importance of saving money. It was like a picture book. And my parents were always very conscious of teaching me about, you have to be careful with your money. You have to have, you know, ways to save your money. You have to like plan for the future and you have to be, you know, smart about your money.
0: What's been the smartest thing you've done with your money?
1: Um, I think the smartest thing that I've done with my money is that what I'll do is I'll, I'll have some set aside to just sort of spend on things that, you know, unfund things, whether it be vacation or nice restaurants or whatever. But I also try to save a percentage every year. Like I set a percentage that I want to save. And I think it's interesting because when you put that aside, you then kind of forget that it exists and it sort of builds and you get to have like a reserve of money that you can save in case you ever need it. I mean, I don't know if I have any like groundbreaking sort of money advice, but the thing that's interesting about the thing that's interesting about money, because I think that like what you as a child think of money or growing up really influences how you view money. And in the book, like, I see that with Barbara Walters because when Barbara Walters was in her thirties and forties, her father was a nightclub, nightclub owner. And he gambled away his family's fortune on these investments by building these nightclubs in New York and in Florida. And as a result of that, Barbara was always very conscious of money and always very afraid that her fortune could disappear one day. Even as she became the most successful journalist of all time, she was always worried that the money could be gone. And I think that's one of the reasons why she started The View, because she thought this could be something she could own. And this is a way she could sort of make more money as a journalist.
0: Is that something she told you in person? Or is that something that you have learned about her? How did you guys get on that topic? If-
1: it, it came up. It came up in several of our conversations. And she talked about it. She talked about how her father and she writes about an audition, her her autobiography, too. But like she talked about how when her father invested all this money and lost it, she had to then support her family, which was very unusual for a woman of her generation, because often, you know, in the 60s and 70s, women would, you know, get married and then they wouldn't have to think about, you know, even supporting themselves. But in Barbara's case, not only was she supporting herself, but she was supporting her mom, her dad, and her sister, Jackie. So it made her very conscious that money could just disappear because her father was very successful for many years as a nightclub owner. And then suddenly one day, he made some bad investments and, and the family, you know, was really hurting.
0: That's a really interesting aspect of her life I'd never heard of before. I wish we knew more about, you know, these people that we, that we admire so much. They come from such storied financial backgrounds. It's really, I think, important to share.
1: I mean, it was interesting because even when she was talking to me at one point, she was like referencing, you know, if she had done something differently in terms of being a producer and producing and owning her shows, she could be rich. And Barbara is rich and, you know, has a tremendous amount of money. But I think she never really saw herself as a rich person as a result of her upbringing and as a result of the fact that she had to support her family for so long.
0: You know, everyone should follow Oprah Winfrey's model, which is you start your own production company (laughs) and you get the checks. You don't there's no middleman. I think that's um, something that she said that she actually learned from from men in the industry obviously because even when she was coming up in the uh, in the industry there were not many women in her in her shoes all right what's the next book what's the next book are you, do you have the author <laughs> do you have the author the, bug that's, now that's I mean are people coming at you with more with pressure to do the next book
1: it's a question that I keep getting a lot what's your next book what's your next book and there's a scene I don't know if this is real or not but there's a scene in the in one of the Harper Lee movies um, Capote I think where um, not that I've written to Kill Mockingbird, but there's a scene where someone asks Harper Lee what you're doing next, and and she's like, I don't know, like like she's like I don't know like why does there have to be a next and there will be an- another book, but I just I'm trying to as much as I can to sort of enjoy this period because writing a book and this is why I'm so lucky that I sort of found journalism writing a book is a very solitary experience and it's a it's a it's a incredibly difficult like I didn't anticipate how hard it would be because you spend so much time on your own and in your own head. And like, there's just so many pages to fill and so much structure to figure out. So I, I do kind of want to sort of enjoy this time. And then hopefully I'll write another book. But it was, it's a really difficult process to write a book. And so I don't think I can jump into another one right away.
0: Yeah. And this one took you several years. So yeah, pace yourself. Not pre- I'm not pressuring you. Let's just be clear. <laughs>
1: That's like a Persian.
0: Yeah, right. Like, Persian. Seriously, when are you going to get your PhD also, by the way, and like your law degree? Because that's that's important too for us Persians.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Going one step backwards again to talking about money, we're really curious because this is airing in May and a lot of college graduations are happening. So we want to ask guests, going back in time when you were graduating from school, what's the one And this question is in partnership with our brand sponsor, Chase. What's the one piece of money advice you wish you had gotten upon graduating from college that would have really helped to set you up better?
1: Um, I think the advice that I would give myself when I was graduating college is don't stress so much about, you know, money in general. It's going to be okay. Like, I didn't really anticipate like when you get a paycheck, it's like a significant amount of money and coming out of college, you don't really realize like the fact that you'll be okay. You're so worried about like getting a job and getting a salary and, you know, succeeding that like, I think that the best advice that I have would be just sort of find something that you love and then you'll be okay. Because you know, people, college graduates eventually find a career that they like and the the key is to find something that you really love, because if you don't, then you'll end up sort of on the wrong path. So try to find, do something that you love, even if it's not the highest salary that you get, do something that you love. And I think that's really the road to succeeding and to sort of achieving your career goals, because eventually, if you're good at what you're doing, you'll get the raises. And if you negotiate correctly, you'll get sort of the salary that you need.
0: Yeah. And I think also important to know, I think for me too, listening to you talk about like pursuing your passion, do what you love. The truth is though, when you get out of college, it's really hard to find that quote unquote dream job. And a lot of us don't really know what we're good at yet or what is our passion. So I think at the minimum, pursue a job that at least allows you to be in an environment that stimulates you that keeps you interested and in growing and hey it may not be where you're going to be for the rest of your life most likely not but because you can't have all of the variables checked off right away because you're still really young and new um it's just important to kind of be where you feel like you can grow and and it's okay that this may be temporary and it's okay if it doesn't pay a ton of money. Probably won't. You're, it's 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 a first level job, but it's really important that you feel like you're going to be able to grow quickly and um, be able to leverage that experience to move on to the next.
1: 100%. You're right. It's not even about the dream job. You shouldn't even think about the dream job. It should be about the job that will put you with the most interesting people. And I had that at Newsweek. To be an editor at Newsweek at 21 um, was an incredible experience for me and turned me into the journalist I am because you had the smartest people in the world there to learn from. And I think that's really the key to, to sort of how you start your career. And when, as you're sort of thinking about your future is to be around people that'll make you the best that you can be.
0: Ramin Setudeh, thank you so much for joining. This has been a real treat for us to learn a little bit more about the behind the scenes of The View, to get to know you a little bit better. Congrats on all the uber success of your book. Ladies Who Punch is available everywhere. Ramin, have a great trip back to New York. I know you're in LA right now. See you back on the East Coast soon.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. See you soon.
0: Thanks so much to Ramin for joining us. To follow him on Instagram or Twitter, follow at Ramin Setudeh. The book, again, is called Ladies Who Punch. If you're looking for a good beach read this Memorial Day weekend or just a good read, period, check it out. All this information is at so We've got the audio and the transcript. And if you want to co host with me for a Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh, a lot of you brave souls have reached out and I thank you and it's happening. <laughs> I am a woman of my words. Hit me up at the website, click on Ask Farnoosh, let me know there. Or you can also direct message me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. And of course, send me your money questions. We need them to make these episodes happen. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money.